But you're right, this Omicron thing is getting out of hand. To no one's surprised, I think. And they closed theaters in Ontario too, eh? Yeah, they did. So, I mean, not that January is like necessarily the best time for movies because it tends to be, you know, historically, as we've said on the show a number of times, it's it's a time when movie theaters will dump the stuff that they're least interested in promoting. But it is often also a time to catch up on all the December stuff, like the awards yeah, contenders right. that... Uh, you couldn't see because they they were in like limited release or whatever. So yeah, there's stuff like Guillermo del Toro's new movie and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie that I wanted to see uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. But I guess hopefully they're they're running again when they do open theaters. I don't know. Uh, otherwise, I'll have to see them on VOD. Like having gone back to the theaters and watched No Time to Die and Spider Man on big screen, it makes a huge difference. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Even Matrix was good in on the big screen. So. I feel like it has to be seen on the big Yeah, yeah, but like, it was even better considering that, uh, I guess, Omicron was scaring people away from the theaters, and uh, it was just me and this other guy, like, a few rows ahead of me, so <laughs> it was almost like a private screening in this 300-person theater. I love it when you have the screen to yourself. So, yeah, that's, uh, that. the next three weeks are going to suck for that, um, but we'll see if they stay true to their word and reopen them after that point, or if we're just stuck the way we were last year, you know? So yeah, do you want to start the episode? Sure, let's do it. Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to episode 103 of the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time on the show, we've got a little bit of catch-up to do. We initially planned to have an episode out uh, the last part of December, but hey, COVID's back, better than ever, so everything kind of got thrown out of whack. There was some sort of snowmageddon happening in BC, or at least BC's version of snowmageddon. Jason was stuck uh, at his uh, parents' place, so what are you going to do? Yeah, acts of God and all that. So instead, here we are talking about some movies that we watched uh, last month as the holidays were rolling out. This time it's going to be Spider-Man, No Way Home, Don't Look Up, and Power of the Dog. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto, and I'm joined by my co-host Jason Chen in Vancouver. So Spider-Man, I can't say I was super stoked to see this. I felt like going into it, I... You know, I sort of knew what to expect. A lot of uh, of the secrets or cameos and things had been leaked in well in advance. There was kind of an open secret that uh, various people would make their return. We obviously knew about the villains that had uh, reared their heads in some of the marketing. We started getting some visitors. <laughs> From every universe. Hello, Peter. Also, we were coming on the tail end of Eternals, which had been a real kind of snooze fest. One of the rare ones, yeah, that we'd seen. Um, what was, 
But you're generally like a bigger Spider-Man fan than me, and I'm pretty sure you entered a rare higher rank in Letterboxd on this movie than I yeah. did. So tell me about it. I figured this would happen too. Yeah, tell me about that because I feel like uh, uh, you have to explain yourself a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Do I? <laughs> like we can both agree it's a good film. I mean, good in the sense of like it's good as a edition of the never-ending Marvel thing. Um, in terms of like, does it do anything super fresh or um, super noteworthy? I don't know. It, it to me, it just feels what I think it's the most noteworthy Spider-Man film there is. <sighs> no, nah, I mean not in comparison to the first two Sam Raimi ones. I don't think. I think those are different for because they're the first, but this one's culturally significant because I think it because it ties all these Spider-Man together. And it's a very interesting retelling of the origin story. True. There is that. Yeah. I think that the ending blew me away. Like when we're first introduced to Spider-Man, he's already like not really a down on his luck kind of teenager, right? Like he's got his suit, but he's already met Iron Man and he's already got all the special suits. He's already defeated aliens. Like his profile couldn't have gotten any bigger. Right. But now we've gone back to the original Spider-Man roots where he's this really down on his luck kid, basically, on his own. And he has to do everything on his own. He doesn't have the support network of his aunt, of the Avengers, of anything else he had before. it. And that was always the story of Peter Parker about this really broke college student who takes care of his own neighborhood and had to do everything himself. So wait, are you talking about the Spider-Man as we have him at the beginning of this movie or at the end? At the end, the ending. Oh, at the end. Okay. Oh, I, I was confused because like, you know, the, obviously I guess he could still call on the Avengers if he wanted to. He sort of does throughout this movie, but, but he um, can't, he can't do that anymore because nobody remembers he's Spider-Man anymore. Not at the end. Yeah. So you're, you're right about that. Yeah. Okay. So cool. We're just, just clear, just working that out. Yeah. So just the fact that they brought it back to square one, I thought was really impressive. I did not think they would do that. Mm. I just thought it would end kind of like the way Spider-Verse did in uh, where like multiple universes like open up and it just opens up the story for more characters and other superheroes to come in. But they made things smaller, which I think is a, pretty good feat i think one of the worst things about eternals is that they tried to make it really big the cosmic stuff finally kind of bit them in the ass to an extent uh, i i'd always liked the cosmic nature of like guardians of the galaxy and the thor movies but this got a little bit too heady a little bit you know and we you can for those listening you you can go back to our episode on the eternals if you want more detail on why we sort of chafed at that i, I thought all the characters got their screen time like they weren't cameos mm, yeah which i didn't think they would happen i thought maybe that dr octopus would have a bigger role but not really like i think they all had enough screen time except maybe the lizard who was kind of like he's not a very interesting character yeah. in general anyway. he was never yeah he wasn't a very charismatic villain in the the first time he appeared anyway and and we're kind of already deep into spoilers but that one character death also kind of blew me i thought that was a very emotional moment yeah i th- and I thought all three Spider-Man were really great. Like, they all brought their own flavors. And it was just nice to see everyone on screen. Like, I would never thought it would happen. So I think it's culturally significant for those reasons. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, uh, and so we've already kind of gotten ahead of ourselves a bit. But for, the, <laughs> yeah. the, for those of you out there who have not seen it, and it's probably not many of you because it's already made a billion dollars at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the plot synopsis that we're dealing with here is it's, of course, picking up 
uh, from the previous Spider-Man movies and the, uh, what was it? Let's see. We've seen, we last saw this version of Peter Parker in Far From Home, which was post-Endgame. His, his identity has been revealed to the public by this Alex Jones-esque version of J. Jonah Jameson. It's this universe's version of uh, J. Jonah Jameson, again, played by J.K. Simmons in a fun little bit of casting. So uh, Peter Parker is stressed out uh, about his identity being leaked. He goes and visits Doctor Strange because he feels like the fact that his identity has been out there and his the fact that he is being helped by... Mary Jane and by Ned, his two best friends, it's negatively affecting their lives, their future careers, their admittance into the school that they want to get into. So he wants Doctor Strange to weave a spill that will make everyone forget that he is Spider-Man and reset everything. But of course, this goes awry when he tries to pick and choose who does and doesn't know. And this opens up rifts in the space-time continuum or whatever the case may be, the multiverse sending... Familiar faces from other Spider-Man franchises colliding with the MCU that we know and love, and many hijinks ensue. And of course, we do finally get the answer to the question that the internet was spending way too much time talking about prior to the release of this movie. Will Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield show up as their incarnations of Spider-Man? Yes, they do. Of course they do, because that's exactly what this movie can do to really amp up the, the fan excitement. Um, getting back to what you were saying about like the, the cultural significance of this movie, I don't, I don't know that I agree with the cultural significance part because I still feel like the end of the day, it is still a standard Disney Marvel production that I do feel a certain amount of superhero fatigue around because, you know, it's still, it's still a save the world plot other than the faces that we know of. The bulk of the movie is, you know, your standard superhero plot. So you're not really moving beyond that a huge amount. You're not riffing on that. Um, and they are kind of tugging at the heartstrings by pulling in all this stuff. It is helpful, though, in the mythology to know exactly where we stand with the multiverse stuff, I think. That's that's helpful to me as a person who has watched multiple versions of Spider-Man over the years. It's cool to know, okay, they're sort of saying that the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans and the Mark Webb Spider-Mans exist in this multiverse, which we'd already kind of know, heard about via the Into the Spider-Verse film, the animated one. Um, so that concept may have felt familiar. You could kind of get your head around it. It wasn't too timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. And... I appreciated that. I didn't get lost in it, I guess is the, the best thing you could say about it. I wouldn't say the plot is poor. Oh, no, it's not poor. It's just it's just familiar. Yeah, I mean, it, well, like, that's all Spider-Man movies. It's Peter Parker screwing up and then Spider-Man having to save the right. day. That, that's all, that's like the basis of every Spider-Man plot ever, where Peter Parker's an idiot. <laughs> but I think, like, don't you find it's really impressive the way they finessed everything? Yeah. Like, the amount of characters, the amount of history that's in all these films... Um, giving Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield like legitimate, you know, speaking roles and not just there to make a quick buck or the different uh, iterations of all the superheroes. Um, I I enjoyed like all the like the super CGI stuff. Um, you're like maybe it doesn't stand out for its plot, but I think in terms of execution, they knocked it out of the park. And it to me, this is like clearly a top ten MCU film, maybe top five. 
Okay. Uh, th- yeah, again, very high praise. I, I would not go that far with it. I mean, this is squarely like a four out of five for me. But which MCU film lately has been better? Lately? Are we talking post-Endgame? You can include Endgame. I think this is better than Endgame. Uh, I think Endgame is extremely overrated. It's the same tired plot and the ending is terrible. I was more entertained by Endgame by a significant margin. I think Infinity War is way better than Maybe, Endgame. but but in terms of the the moments that I latch on to... And the certainly the jokes like Fat Thor and stuff like that. I, I I have more memorable moments with Endgame than I have with any of the recent releases. Um, but all but setting that aside, I will grant you that the if we're talking about Spider-Man movies specifically, the history of Spider-Man movies, certainly the third Sam Raimi one and the second Mark Webb one, they had way too many villains in them and something with the screenplay and this combination of all the factors, production, editing, everything made it so that they felt busy and crowded. And that's what I expected going into this one. I was like, how can you have all of these returning villains from previous versions of the franchise, not to mention multiple Spider-Men and not somehow get mixed up the way those previous installments did. And to their credit, it didn't happen. They kept it all uh, reined in, like you said, and, while still making it, making the appearances by Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield feel like they were characters. They were bringing the versions of themselves that we had gotten to know in the earlier films, and they felt like there had been a continuation. You know, the people we were seeing were not just sort of like cut cardboard cutouts. You know, they you could sense some sort of like progression from where we left them in the, the last time we saw them. So obviously Tom, Tobey Maguire had aged, he had more experience being Spider-Man, more like life failures and stuff. He brought that to the fore. Andrew Garfield felt like, you know, he they obviously had a couple of references to the death of Gwen Stacy in the second film. So it, you know, that weighed on him. You could feel that. So yeah, I appreciated all that. I thought that was that was really solid. Still, though, it didn't really what it was it all worked really well it just didn't rise above like cream of the crop style for me so on that note like the sentimentality thing i get it i think it really some of the like our favorite mcu films depends on who your favorite character is so for me seeing garfield and mcguire and holland on the screen as spider-man is way more thrilling than watching captain america lift thor's hammer like those those kind of moments don't yeah so those kind of moments don't really mean anything to me yeah that's fair i mean that's fair and the thing about villains too, like I think one of the reasons it was or worked so well is that these villains in No Way Home were not bent on taking over the world. Yeah, true. A lot of them had their own motivations, and it was either I like this new world that I'm in, or I want to go back to the world where I was. Mm, yeah. Like other than the Green Goblin, I don't think anyone really wanted to destroy the planet. Even then, the Green Goblin, I think had a very interesting storyline with Willem Dafoe, the hobo, versus Willem Dafoe, the Green Goblin. Yes, yeah, they brought that like, back. Like, the whole split personality thing yeah. was was really well done. If we're talking about Infinity War, like, the whole end battle, where it's just, like, a mishmash of characters popping in and out and smashing into each other, um, I find that far less interesting than Spider-Man. And to me, like, that Infinity War shot where where they're kind of like throwing the the gauntlet around like a football on the battlefield that got annoying to uh, me. Do you remember that? Not really. Yeah. And and, and the, my final point is so I think in like kind of preparation for this movie I ended up 
watch rewatching the old Spider-Man films, not the amazing Spider-Man, but the Tobey Maguire ones. The third one isn't as bad as I remembered. Okay. It it there are certain moments where like you're like Sam Raimi, this has kind of gotten a bit too much into B movie territory. And you could tell where the studio interference comes in. But for the most part, like it's still a pretty enjoyable movie. I was pleasantly surprised at how not awful it was. And I think because in in comparison to Spider-Man 2, it did so poorly that we have a really, really terrible memory of Spider-Man 3. But I would almost venture to say it like uh, there are parts of it where I think are way better than Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. And also my final point is I think No Way Home is the best Spider-Man movie so far in the MCU. Of the three, this one's by far the best. There's no... There's no debate, in my opinion. I would agree that it's better than Far From Home by a significant margin. Yeah, Far From Home's the worst, I think. There are parts of Homecoming that I still really like. Less so the second and third acts, more so the first act when they are establishing what uh, Tom Holland's version of Spider-Man is like in that he's scrappy and doesn't have any resources. And they brought it back full circle after three movies. It's incredible. Yeah, so they're, 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 I guess... Brave is probably too, uh, too cliche of a word, but at least they're they're taking a, a bit of a swing and they're saying, okay, we've seen how Spider-Man can integrate as one of the Avengers and he has all of Tony Stark's gadgets at his disposal. Why not change things up a little bit, send him back to uh, the more scrappy version of the character that we're familiar with from, say, the Raimi films where... You really don't know if Peter Parker's going to have enough money to pay rent and he's going to have his landlord banging on his door, stuff like that. Going back to like all the, the talk about Spider-Man and, and how he gets himself into trouble all the time. Yeah. I think the cost he paid in this one, in No Way Home, is higher than any of the costs he's paid in all the other films. The fact that he has to let go of his entire friendship circle and his aunt dies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, we're deep into it now, so... <laughs> And the fact that he has no help from the Avengers, I think that is that was the biggest sacrifice and his most heroic move um, as hmm. Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't think you get the same emotional, like, sort of um, decision-making in the other films. Because I think the only other real conflict was, like, the Civil War, right? Where, like, the, they split into two factions. Yeah. And maybe Captain America has some difficult choices. They never really go into it, but it's implied that he'd rather live out his life. But uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker's problems just seem so much more grounded. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people really identify with Spider-Man as a character, because he he does feel like one of the more approachable superheroes, you know, in that he has this, this superpower that, or this set of superpowers that were, you know, uh, the classic example of, it being visited upon him by a force that he couldn't control. You know, he's not Batman. He's not super wealthy. He's not Superman. He wasn't born that way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that just, it's, it's a freak accident. It's the classic freak accident. And a lot of other superhero stories could arguably be, were modeled on that. You know, somebody falls into a vat of toxic goo, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, the final thing is like, I always say the final thing, but it's never the final thing. (laughs) So I gave it four and a half stars because I don't find any real flaws with it. Like, I get why the fan service gets annoying, but I think they did a really good job. I get the whole thing about, well, this is just another big CGI thing. It's like, yeah, I get that. But the whole, the fight where he had with uh, Doctor Strange in the alternate universe, alternate dimension, that was really cool. 
So so visually, they, they did a lot of interesting things. The dialogue, including MJ and Ned, I think were really good comic relief. And and I'm glad like their their sort of like teenage romance doesn't overshadow the rest of the story. Yeah. And I think like it, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the MCU version of Spider-Man, um, throughout all three, in fact, is the way the dialogue between those three principal characters is written. Because I often found as as solid as the Sam Raimi films were, I often felt that the stuff between Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, and James Franco was cringe-inducing at best. And and well, that's because it's James Franco's fault. Partially him, but but even even <laughs> if it was just Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst on screen together, like I never bought them as a couple when they when the movie yeah. needs them to break up. The reasoning always felt strained or forced or based on you know. Uh, yeah, emotions or, or or situations that don't read like human emotions. I always had a problem with that. So at least in this, you have a Mary Jane or an MJ, as she prefers to be called. Of course, we're always being reminded of that. We have an MJ and a Peter that read as more like real human teenagers who are reacting to situations in ways that feel authentic, as authentic as they can. Um, so I've always really liked that. Obviously, it builds to a head here. You do get, um, you know, they, they're leaning on each other for support. You see how they want to go all, all off to school together. And um, the, the fact that they might not be able to do that is what pushes Peter over the edge into asking for Doctor Strange's help. It's not necessarily just his problem. I think the chemistry between MJ and Peter Parker in this one is way better than Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire. They always felt like an odd mismatch. Yes. Oh, yeah. And who knows? Maybe that's like some real life chemistry. Like yeah. obviously they're 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 dating in real life, so whatever. But um, the the other thing that I that I did end up thinking about though that maybe brought my score down a little bit was how even though that scenario that forces Peter into his calling on Doctor Strange for help and in casting this spell that makes sense in the moment, but then by the time he actually goes to Doctor Strange, all of the forces that he was kind of running away from, like the uh, nonstop news coverage of his apartment and the broadcast by J. Jonah Jameson, it felt like it had kind of faded into the background and wasn't as important anymore. You weren't really seeing him being chased around New York as much. It's almost like they they set up the scenario and then kind of forgot about it or didn't reinforce yeah, it. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I don't know, did did you did you pick up on that at all cuz then like there was a there was a transition point where they make fun of this version of J Jonah Jameson for being like an Alex Jones type guy working out of a basement studio with barely any equipment and then the next time we see him he's got this fully funded multi-million dollar uh studio to shoot in and he's got news vans running around New York chasing around Spider-Man and I was like uh, there was some some sort of like logical gaps there that I guess they had to cut they had to skip to for time purposes, but it felt like the original reason the original reasons that forced Peter Parker's hand became less important as soon as the villains from the previous movies showed up. Yeah, I, I think that's fair, but I I also understand why they did it because if if every shot of Spider Man had a bunch of like reporters and paparazzi surrounding him it would annoy me as a viewer mm, yeah because there'd be too much going on i can't focus um it's not that big of a deal to me what bugged me a little bit more was how stupid dr strange was in <laughs> first of all he doesn't explain the spell to spider-man properly 
Second of all, he just kind of agrees to do it. And and that to me was probably the shakiest part of the film. Doctor Strange basically said, well, look, I know you're an Avenger. You help save the world. I'm going to do you this one favor. Yeah. But at the same time, it seems rather reckless of Doctor Strange. But maybe that's part of his characterization because he believes he's the Supreme Sorcerer. So if he can't do it, then no one else can. Which, again, sets up their sequel for Scarlet Witch to come in, which is which would be very exciting to see, too. It's been a while, obviously, since the original Doctor Strange came out, and we did, couldn't really tap into his character very much in the Avengers movies, partially because he was dead for half of them. But, you know, maybe his recklessness has kind of, like, faded from my memory a little bit. And, and, and I, I agree with you, though. Like, him deciding to cast a spell that's going to alter the memories of at least the entire population of Earth seems quite hasty. (laughs) Like, can you not think of the consequences? The other thing um, that I didn't particularly like was the presence of the box where he keeps the spell, that little cube thing. Oh, the MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah, the MacGuffin. I didn't think that was necessary. What did you think? No, I mean, I guess it it serves a function earlier on, but then as soon as it's given to MJ to take care of, it becomes less important and it doesn't really... I don't even remember what happens to it in the final climax. Like, well, um, Green Goblin puts a pumpkin bomb in there and blows it up, and then the whole u- whole universe and sky starts. Oh, cracking, that's right? how that. Okay, that's but I felt like they should have done it in another method where, like, maybe it should have just the sky should have just started cracking in general. Right, the spell fails, but like it didn't court. need the cube to be thrown around like a football again. Like, yeah, that happened in Infinity War. So one one final thought though is like I think there's a ton of moments to like in No Way Home. But for considering like the colors that Spider-Man uses, considering the colors that his villains come in, I didn't feel it was particularly well shot. Like there's no shot that stayed with me. In some of the other Marvel films, you, you could like pinpoint to a certain shot or a certain sound that was that kind of blew you away. I didn't get this. Like it was it was, you know, very vanilla A to B. Um, this is what happens, and it, it's very. It's, it did a very good job of showing it that it happened, but there's no like image that's seared into my brain. No, that's true. E- even the final shot of like the regular Spider-Man swinging across the neighborhood, you never really get a full like close look at him either. I liked what they did with the individual costumes, but the the shots, yeah, the cinematography felt very samey and very like you know hard to pick up pick apart from any of the other marvel movies that have come before or will come later maybe that's just all in service of marvel's house style as it were you know they want they want everything to feel cohesive yeah 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 but so it was cool to see like the the references to the uh the comics version of green goblin's outfit with the ragged kind of hoodie uh, hanging off of his armor, like that was <laughs> yeah. that was pretty fun. Um, There's a lot of fan service. Yeah, here. so like those little things, those those stick in my memory more so than any like uh, sequence or um, or framing or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. I was well, I was gonna just ask you since you know you didn't like it as much as I did. I'm gonna put you on the spot, but what are other Marvel films that you definitely like better than No Way Home? Oh well, I can tell you right now. Um, the first Guardians film, Thor Ragnarok, first Ant Man, uh, all three of those are above this. And my and the first Ant Man has really, really not aged well for me. And most of it is just like the comedy. 
in those films. Like the jokes and the music choices. You didn't like the jokes in this? I thought some of the jokes in this one. Really I don't know. Funny. Yeah. Maybe it's, again, maybe it's superhero fatigue talking, but. Or maybe it's not, you're you're not a big Spider-Man or as big a fan of Spider-Man, I guess. I don't know. I, I feel like I like the character as much as the next guy. I'm definitely, I wouldn't consider myself like a fan in the way that I, you know, I like batman in the in enough to get the graphic novels and own those and stuff like that but i've never i've never bought spider-man comics so that's that's kind of the ranking on that so maybe that's why because i'm like a big spider-man person he was always one of my favorites okay yeah so yeah knowing that yeah so maybe i'm coming into this with with uh not the appropriate amount of (laughs) fan adoration well because i mean like if you think about how much fan service there is i think a lot of mcu films are overrated because they do the fan service it just so happens that the fan service in no way home is probably something i find more palatable interesting okay okay like like the same analogy with captain america picking up thor's hammer i was like Okay, great. I, I don't get the same joy out of it as everyone else. No, I'm certainly not cheering the way the the famous clip of people freaking out. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not in that group. But um, you know, I I find like the the writing the writing is really where it starts for me. And the, something about say Taika Waititi's sense of humor, or or even uh, James Gunn's sense of humor on a on a good day. I, I'm not always a James Gunn fan, but yeah, yeah. But those are the Marvel exceptions where you can really feel like even John Favreau, you can feel like the director's touch with John Watts. It's like, okay, yeah, you're kind of like the Russo brothers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. That's not, they're not auteur driven pieces by any stretch of the imagination. Exactly. Um, Maybe before we kick it over to the next movie though, uh, what did you think about the little uh, stinger uh, with uh, Tom Hardy? Oh, I thought that was one of the lamest ones Mm. I've ever seen. Cause, I, I didn't like how they forced it. Like the whole movie, they, they made everything tie in seamlessly, right? They reset the universe. They brought all these villains in. They explained it and we bought it. And then this Tom Hardy scene comes in. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, So is Venom in going to be in the next film or is it just like the black gooey thing? Well, the black gooey thing is Venom. So it implies that a piece of, a okay, piece of Venom enough, will... But I mean, Eddie Brock. Well, not not Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock. It's implying that the, the symbiote has stayed behind or a piece of it stayed behind will replicate find a host etc etc this is the genius behind putting spider-man back in square one is that you could really go anywhere with it now like you can introduce a new mj and a new gwen now no because i mean well mj is still played by zendaya so zendaya her character's name is michelle jones her name's not mary jane i thought she was michelle jones watson right but it's not mary jane <laughs> mary jane like in the comic books is like the, the redhead girl next door and then you have Gwen Stacy, who they never introduced either. So they could go that in that direction. If they, I would, I would not be happy if they. Well, it'd be too confusing, right? Yeah. MJ is Zendaya, and then you have another MJ. Yes. But I could see them toying with that idea at least, maybe as a joke. So. I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, uh, they haven't introduced uh, this version of Gwen Stacy though, so that's fair game. Yeah, that's probably. My next guess would probably be Gwen. Or they haven't even introduced Black Cat yet, Felicia Hardy. So that'll be interesting too. So yeah, that little bit with Tom Hardy is um, was obviously just stuck in there. It's like it's almost just like ha- like a handy little um, tool or like way of understanding the where we stand with the other Spider-Man villain characters that are made that are in movies made by Sony, but are not MCU films. So at least now we have an answer. We're like, okay, so Tom Hardy is not going to cross paths with Tom Holland, barring another multiverse screw up. So we know that. 
we know that probably the Jared Leto Morbius thing that was just rescheduled to April, that's probably sectioned off in its own thing. So no crossovers there. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the trailer for Morbius looks good. I don't know about the film. Yeah, the trailer I, it, looks it, good. it did look mildly intriguing. I, I still have high doubts about it, but we'll see. I think you're just a cynic. I'm a cynic about superhero movies. There's just been too many. <laughs> Except for the there's Batman. Old, there's going to be more and more and Well, more obviously, and more. but, the uh, you know, this is where I get choosy. You know, I'm going to pick and choose something like the Batman over another Disney Plus show. <laughs> Unless Taiki, Taika Waititi directed it, then you'd be all Yes. So, oh, yeah. Like, it really depends, right? So Yeah, that's where we're going to end up. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a buyer, buyer's market in that sense. Um, so should we talk about something that is probably just as controversial as uh, Marvel opinions, and that would be Don't Look Up. Uh, I would say the legitimacy of the controversy in Don't Look Up is a lot more legitimate than the MCU controversy. In the sense that people are fighting over a legitimate issue, or the fact that people are... Um, well, that's part of it, I guess, yeah. I didn't think about it that way. I just meant the the controversies in the MCU are just fan fanboys fangirls just fighting each over each other right don't look up i think does open up an interesting conversation about what is good satire what are we fighting about and why did this film get made yes okay okay good so we're on the same page on that um so don't look up before we go too far into it is the new film from adam mckay who previously made vice the biopic of uh, about dick cheney and the Big Short, a fairly critically acclaimed movie from, what was it, 2014? Uh, something like that. Yeah, anyway, that that was the one that really kind of signaled that Adam McKay was making a shift in his career away from kind of studio comedies that he'd made in the past, like Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, uh, to issues-driven satire with a message and like politically motivated films. So this new film, uh, Netflix has been very excitedly teasing it for... Pretty much, like, I think they were teasing it way back in January, February of 2021 when they first acquired the rights. And they, I remember they shared an image of DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jennifer Lawrence on a plane. And they didn't say anything else about the film. They just said it's something to do with, like, a disaster or climate or and that DiCaprio and Lawrence were playing scientists. And then we didn't know a whole lot about it at all up until, like, November when it was revealed that the movie is all about an impending asteroid impact or comet impact on planet earth that's going to wipe out the entirety of earth's population and leonardo dicaprio and jennifer lawrence play the two scientists who have discovered this comet and are vainly trying to alert the world of this danger potentially to rally humanity into trying to divert or blow up this comet or somehow save the earth from destruction and in this rather broad i would say commentary by adam mckay nobody takes him seriously our guests today have made a pretty big discovery in space how big is this thing going i can't destroy my ex-wife's house is that possible <laughs> there's a 100 percent chance that we're all going to die okay. Hey. Hey. <laughs> well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm, not, so not so much. It's supposed to be this very on-the-nose kind of thing, like, look, this is all about climate change. <laughs> or uh, alternatively, you could say it works about COVID, too. And they basically uh, accuses anyone watching it of not taking disasters seriously enough and 
that society sucks and we're all going to die and we might deserve it. That's that's kind of the takeaway. <laughs> and I would have thought that the movie would have start started and stopped there. It would have been fine. But then it acquired this weird after image on social media that I did not I did not expect at all. And I kind of hated <laughs> I, I would say like two things kind of before we get into it. So Adam McKay has done a lot of studio comedies and I think he took a big risk with the big short and it paid off. I, I think he's never really strayed from like the big budget comedy formula. What I think did happen though, is he kind of fell into the Will Ferrell trap where they drink too much of their own Kool-Aid. They get too smart for their own good. And then they start making films that I don't think they're... I don't want to say half-baked, but they're a lot less intelligent than they could be. Yes. I, I think this is really apparent in Don't Look Up. I think a lot of the negative criticism against Don't Look Up is the fact that they're hitting you over the head with something you already know, or at least the public already knows. Whereas in The Big Short, it's a little technical. And, you know, having all these celebrity cameos explain things, having all these, you know, Steve Carell type, caricature characters explain things I, I i think it's a very good vehicle for something like that because when that when that movie was released at least part of the world most of the world had recovered yes so it, it was kind of funny in that sense to look back and be like well look at these look you know these assholes and dickwads running our country and look what happened to us whereas in don't look up i mean it is still very much like crisis mode for some of the environmental stuff and I just don't think they did a very good job of lampooning it. Yeah. Um, I think they almost laughed it off as, hey, this is just how the world works and we're all going to die. Yes. And that's fine. But it also felt too unfunny and too morbid. Yeah, it was very bleak in a way that it didn't really need to be. And should we take points off because it's bleak? Well, here's the Re thing. Requiem for a Dream is bleak. True. Yeah. It's... It's bleak, but it also does not feel true to life. Okay, that's a good point, yeah. It's a weird it mix because, you know, I think anybody who is concerned about climate change specifically knows that it's a really serious problem. And no one's de denying that, you know, more could be done and that there's a lot of bad actors out there who misrepresent things or prolong the problem or, you know, all these things. But this film isn't really fair to the people who know that it's a problem and are actively trying to fix things. We're, we're expected to believe that DiCaprio and, and Lawrence are like two of the only characters in this film who are taking this threat of the comet seriously. And everybody else are idiots or airheads who couldn't care less yeah. that the world's about to be destroyed. So it's, it just doesn't feel authentic to what would really happen. I think you would need you you almost need the film to to have a better balance between people who are taking it taking the threat seriously and people who are not. And so part of the movie is is you know really criticizing the people in power. Yeah. The people with money who can make a difference but choose not yeah. to. We're looking at this film and thinking Leonardo DiCaprio makes 25 million, Jennifer Lawrence makes 20 million. Hollywood is one of the biggest disruptors in like I I environmental causes uh because of all the filming and and all the stuff that they do um and we're supposed to laugh with them or at them it's kind of a weird sort of dynamic where rich people are portraying poor people 
criticizing rich people. So they, that's that's another layer to it, yeah. Like Parasite at least did it both ways, where like the rich people and the poor people, none of, none of the people were were good, like quote unquote. Yeah. Um, they all had their faults and everything, and it's really telling that in a comedy, the only joke I remember is. Uh, that general dude charging Jennifer Lawrence money for water and biscuits from the cafeteria. Yes. Like, how is that your biggest joke in environmental disaster film? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me. There are lots of things that are intended as jokes, but they don't, they never made me laugh. No matter how ridiculous they were. Yeah, agreed. It's almost, it's almost like bizarre where, where you're like, I don't know if I should be laughing at the joke, the performance or how bad this movie is. Yeah, and it just and the the other thing about it is that it wears out its welcome. It goes on for yes. 2 hours 20 minutes or so. Oh, it's way too long. And a movie like this should be 2 hours or less. You know, there's and it it starts to feel more and more like Adam McKay is just pressing his advantage saying, "Look how smart I am. I know. Look how stupid the world is. We're all going to die." And then maybe that's where the sense of bleakness comes from. It's the the bleakness is, does nothing to do with the story. It has to do with his attitude yeah. towards the way things are and how and I just don't agree with him. Yeah. And then he and then he made things worse by diving into the the commentary on social media stoking uh, up this like the these two factions people who believe that you know critics were uh part of the problem by disliking the filmmaking <laughs> and and then he he alleged in in not so many words that um if you didn't like the film that somehow you were contributing to climate change yeah that 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 argument I did not like at all, and I think it's very yeah. presumptuous. That goes to my back to my original point, where like I think he just got full of himself and thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is. Same with Will Ferrell. Yeah, you're you're not as funny and smart as you think you are. Yeah. But let me put this question to you because I had been thinking about this the entire time. Um, was Leonardo DiCaprio miscast? I think he was. I find him a very unbelievable, sympathetic character. Yeah. I think he's a bit of a dick in this, but. I think I like it more and it's more proper for him to play like a jerk, like in Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. He's not a, a, an actor that you really sympathize with. And I don't think some of his strongest work are, are, are works where he's the aggressor, where he's like the troublemaker. Obviously, we know he can be funny. We've seen him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And <laughs> the freak out on the TV show was great. By the way, Kate Blanchett was excellent, huh? She was. Yeah. If anyone's seems to know the right tone to take with this it's probably her i i think so but she got but it, the message but the movie around her didn't help her at all so um yeah and casting tyler perry as her co-star on that morning show didn't make any sense but anyway and jennifer lawrence too like she's funny in silver linings playbook because she's kind of crazy and aggressive yeah but like when you have to sympathize with both Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, and maybe it's because their public personas are like seared into our brains, it was very hard for me to root for them. It's a it's a big mess of a movie that doesn't really connect, and yet it's being used as this kind of like cudgel online to kind of separate people, you know, along ideological lines. You need to stay off the internet, Rob. Yeah, so, <laughs> I do. I really do. But it just—I never—I wouldn't have expected that that tone of rhetoric around this movie. You know, I think that's what caught me off guard and, and puzzled I me. I don't understand how it got praise. I think it should be a lot 
more widely panned than it is. Pro critics obviously took their jabs at it, but the people who seem to be on the movie's side are people who share Adam McKay's viewpoint that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do really because everyone out there is idiots. And I'm like, I don't agree with that view. Yeah, that's a stupid view to take. There are are obviously lots of people who share that view, but I'm like, maybe they're part of the problem for seeing the rest of humanity in such a dim light? I don't know. Or just the fact that they're just listening to it and not actively, you know, creating progressive conversations. Yeah, Yeah, it's more of like this armchair activism stuff. It's like Adam McKay read some paper about how politicians are awful and decided to make a movie about it. Christ, where have we seen that before? And the budget didn't need to be like hundreds of millions or whatever it was. The movie isn't helped either by having Meryl Streep play a obviously a very yeah that was terrible a very direct like Trump analog. But I mean, nothing that they write for any of those scenes in the White House could possibly be any weirder or stupider than what happened in real life. And that's a problem that... (laughs) I mean, that's debatable. But I just, again, I feel like Meryl Streep and and Jonah Hill were completely miscast. And I remember reading in some article that Meryl Streep wanted the president to be portrayed as neither Republican nor Democrat. But holy hell, like, that was the most biased interpretation I've ever seen. And you kind of touched on this, too. But what the hell was that ending on that alien planet? <laughs> yeah. And also, as much as I like Mark Rylance, he's he really got on my nerves in this. He, film yes, too. he got on my nerves too. I I mean, I knew I didn't like his performance. I knew how they were writing the character, but it didn't make any sense. Again, he was miscast, right? Very much miscast. It was like maybe a funny joke to have an actor of his pedigree play a character like that, but you need like Somebody who literally looks like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or somebody who's like well, believably a uh, basement dwelling dweeb type character who has wields this immense power. Instead of a tech CEO, he is a more deranged version version of Julian Assange. Yes. Which makes no sense to me. And the fact that I get he's lampooning all these tech companies and probably Zuckerberg to the like the most yeah. extent. Um, like this out-of-touch tech bro who crunches everything to data. As much as you're making fun of him, you also end up pointing out that everything he said turned out to be true. Yes. Almost yes. everything. Like like the fact that Meryl Streep would get eaten by that whatever thing was, was ended up being true, yes. right? It, like the only thing that he got wrong was he told DiCaprio's character that he would die alone, which he didn't. But yeah, maybe he did in a way because, you know, metaphorically he was alone. But again, like it, it totally disrupts your own message. It trumps your own message, and I'm super confused. Yeah, no, it it um it was simultaneously too broad and didn't go far enough with its criticism. While you know, I don't even know how that's possible. You know how something can be can be hitting you over the head but not going far enough. You know what I mean? It is such a weird film in that sense. Like I know it's bad, but I. I almost can't pinpoint exactly what's so bad about it. I can give you like a hundred reasons, but none of them are like, you know, damning on its own. Well, I'll close this out by saying, and uh, my brother and I watched this together over the holiday. And uh, the whole time we, we were struck by the same feeling over and over and over again, which was that the movie Greenland with Gerard Butler that came out like a year ago. Yep. That did so much of a better job it's the same premise. It's a the the humanity's getting wiped out by a comet. Um, 
Greenland is simultaneously more optimistic than this movie. It has like a more kind of like unifying message mm-hmm. about how humanity can come together to survive an apocalypse while also being way more bleak and way more accurate to the way shit would really hit the fan in a situation like this. So it did it did everything that Adam McKay was trying to do and kind of disguised it as like a B movie at the same time. <laughs> So Greenland was a fun movie. Yeah. And I, I, I still like that. That to me is my current gold standard for like uh, comets hitting the earth and wiping everything out move type movies. I still have a soft spot for Armageddon, but okay, fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so uh, should we, we have a few more minutes left. So uh, let's talk about something that's probably going to be cleaning up a number of nominations in the acting category in a couple months time at the Oscars. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, this is uh, The Power of the Dog uh, from Jane Campion. Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. (laughs) uh, Had a limited run in theaters, but then went direct to Netflix, just like, don't look up. Um... But for my money, this is a considerably better film, very different subject matter, but very much one of these sort of art house westerns that is kind of showing off like the very best of what westerns can do in this day and age when, you know, not very many of them get made. But when they do, if there's some good people behind the camera and in front of the camera, you can get some really good results. Um, Maybe not necessarily the it depends where you land with these sorts of like heavy drama intense stories um this isn't like an action focused western it's very much a interpersonal sort of tragedy um family drama it's clearly one of the best roles that benedict cumberbatch has ever had showcase for jesse plemons and kirsten dunst which is always good to see they're very good together um what did you think of it i'm in the minority here but i didn't particularly like it Mm, okay interesting so let's start with I think the performances, because I think that's what everyone's sort of like hung up on. Yeah. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch to me does not come off as a as a rancher to me. I, I thought his accent drifted in and out. Um, maybe it's his pace of speech as well, but I'm more used to Western movies with male characters who have a drawl, right? Or like take a long time to say something. It feels to me Benedict is in the stage play where he like enunciates too well. And and I think they do make a point of him saying like he attended Yale or yes, something. Yes, he's got because a, he 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 does sound more. He's got a classical than, education, yeah, yeah. yeah than, than the Western rancher characters that we've seen. I didn't find his performance that compelling for that reason because I just never bought it. I never bought him as a rancher. Mm. Um, I think Jesse Plemons is great. I think he's always been really great. I remember seeing him on Friday Night Lights and thinking. It's not a it's not a very attractive guy, but this guy's got chops. <laughs> and Kirsten Dunst, yeah. I, I think she's gotten better with age. Um, if you ever seen it on Becoming a God in Central Florida, that's a great show. Yeah, I know that's that's a favorite of yours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she's incredible in it, and she plays like somewhat of a similar character here, where she's kind of like the meek housewife and and she needs to be saved a little bit. And Cody Smith McPhee, I don't know, like. To, this is sort of like a murder psychological thriller story going on. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. where the motivations aren't clear until the very last scene. Yes. I thought 
in a movie like this, I thought the Phantom Thread was way better. I agree with that. Yeah. I never got the simmering tension between all the characters in this film. I, I never felt thrilled or scared at any point for any of the characters. I definitely, I felt the tension, I would say. I think for me, Benedict Cumberbatch, he's he's better here than he has been in a lot of his other recent roles where he plays Americans because I feel like to your point about to your point about the accent like it feels like he put he got he had a lot more time on this to work on the accent and decide on a specific region and backstory for it whereas you know the, the accent he does for Doctor Strange or other American characters feels almost sort of rushed and sort of flat and not specific enough um, but I always felt no matter where he was in the story you could tell the effect that he had over the other characters where everyone was terrified of him and less so Jesse Plemons, like Jesse Plemons character kind of knew how to handle him, but, and just sort of let him burn out as like a, like almost like a Tasmanian devil kind of style, just let him kind of spin off in his own way. And Jesse Plemons was always very confident and kind of controlled, but you could tell the impact that Benedict Cumberbatch's character Phil had on everyone else and so I could feel the tension building, but I wasn't exactly sure what the outlet would be. Would it be he gets shot and killed by somebody in a fit of rage? Or I think this movie takes the more interesting route, which is, um, you know, it's this this poisoning with anthrax. Um, but I think the to your point about Phantom Thread, that's a more rewatchable movie because once you like you can see that movie multiple times and you can pick up on how they kind of lay the seeds for what the big revelation at the end with this I think once you see it I don't have the same kind of desire to go back and watch it through again uh, but th- isn't that marks off against this film like uh, like a good thriller to me has rewatchability something like Gone Girl has rewatchability yeah yeah so for me, like, this is not like a 5 out of 5. This is a 4.5 out of 5. So I'm like, it's getting a lot of points for me on the filmmaking aspect of it. You know, the cinematography and the 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 care with which it's put together and the staging and all of that. I think I, it, in order for it to be like a full 5 out of 5, like, you know, or a, like a timeless kind of classic in the making type of movie, it would need that rewatchability. And for me, it doesn't really have that. See, I came in way lower. I'm, I'm thinking like 3.5 out of 5 on this one. I just feel like I've seen way too many better psychological thrillers. The point you made about like potentially maybe, you know, Cumberbatch's character being killed off violently, that would have been really out of place because again, like maybe it was too flat, but I never felt the tension. I think people respected Cumberbatch's character because it was written that way and not necessarily because like of his performance. And and he's only domineering because we only see him dominate Kirsten Dunst, who is like, really feeble and weak. no but we see we see how much respect his men have for him though uh, respect but not fear i don't know i think it's fear I, I don't think his men fear him at all like they're they have fun together they like they do things together and i don't think at any point cumberbatch like does anything scary to them he shouts at not them, not maybe not outwardly i think it's i think it's a little bit more hidden than that it's kind of like i i think if they were going to do that character study route I think Cumberbatch on his own coming to terms with his past is a lot more interesting. The The fact that it's implied that he was like either abused or was a closet gay or something like that. 
there's a strong, strong like hint that that's what happened between him and his former mentor. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's key to it, I think. But it's it's how he takes those confused feelings out on the Cody Smith McPhee character. But what does he do to them actually? Like nothing incredibly like sadistic or terrible. It destroys one of his flower arrangements, you know, makes him ride a horse when he's not ready. Like, I, I don't know. I don't see the threat. I see a, a, a tough rancher trying to toughen up a kid. That's what I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Okay, so you're you're sort of on his well, side in this. Well, like, this I kind of uh... get where Cumberbatch is coming from when, when it comes to uh, Cody Smith McVie's character. Um, he does seem very feeble. I mean, it's just... He's also like a weird sort of character study on his own because from the very beginning, he's set up to be groomed into a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I think it's the, it's all about how, you know, Cody Smith McPhee, he's not interested in the rancher life at all. He would, no. he would prefer to be buried in his books, studying to be a doctor or a surgeon or a serial and, killer. Or a serial killer. You know, it's clearly murdering small animals is definitely one of, one of the tick boxes there. But uh, it's how he's treated by these ranchers that clearly plants the seeds. You know, they, they make fun of him mercilessly when he's serving them food early in the film. And he remembers that. And then... Oh, I think only Cumberbatch does, though. I don't know. But Cumberbatch is kind of encouraging the other guys to laugh. Like, they're laughing with him at Cody Smith McPhee's, like, what, what they perceive to be effeminate qualities. Which I didn't think was that bad. But maybe I just have a thicker skin. But <laughs> there's also another scene where he's teaching... Cody Smith McPhee to ride the horse and he he slaps the horse so it runs off and one of the farmhands runs after Cody Smith McPhee and, and Cumberbatch is like, well, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm going to go save the kid. It's like, no, don't do it. Yeah. And it, it, it came off as not like him drawing a line in the sand. It's like, hey, dude, I'm trying to teach this kid something. Don't interfere. That's what how I took it. So, but the But I think there's something important that happens in between there because there is a transition with the two characters where they go from like uh, Cumberbatch's character hates Cody Smith McPhee, distrusts him, thinks he's effeminate, thinks he's a waste of space. And then Cody Smith McPhee's character stumbles across Cumberbatch's little secret haven area where he's, you know, he's got the uh, the token, the, the handkerchief from his mentor the, and sees him completely naked there like when he thinks he's alone it's only after that that Cumberbatch decides to sort of take him under his wing. So it's the way I read it was that that was the that was the turning point where Cumberbatch starts seeing maybe he sees a kindred spirit, a different like a younger kindred spirit in Cody Smith McPhee's character decides, oh, well, maybe the two of us, maybe we're both like closeted gay. Um, they don't have words for that. So he decides, well what's one thing that I can teach this kid? Oh, I can teach him to be a rancher. Well, anyway, it's, um, I'm glad we got a chance to, to fit it in here because the, <laughs> uh, I know I have a feeling like it's going to be, like I said at the beginning of the segment, it's going to be well represented at the Oscars because it's one of those kind of movies. I hope not. <laughs> I don't think it deserves it. But like I said, the, the, the field is small this year. So well, we'll have our like top 10 films of the year soon right yeah so uh, look forward to the next episode when we get into the matrix resurrections and cover our top 10 of 2021 but until then my name is robert snow in toronto and my name is jason chen in vancouver thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time the extra buttery podcast is written recorded and produced by jason chen and robert snow 
Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.